Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have in the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as the founder and CEO of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. So welcome to another episode of the Holistic Marketing Podcast. Today I am welcoming Natalie Puglisi, who is a lawyer by trade and runs her own business offering consultation and lots of legal resources for online entrepreneurs, such as contract templates and a membership helping entrepreneurs protect their dream business. Today, we're going to discuss what business owners should have in place for each stage in their business for when you're getting started, as you're taking on clients, and as you continue to grow. So welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from this conversation. And so um, before we dive into all the knowledge you're going to share, I'd love for you to tell everyone a little about who you are and what your mission is. Yeah. So, I mean, my name is Natalie Puglisi and I'm an attorney out here in California. I live in a really small town. Well, it's not really that small anymore, but growing up here, it was relatively small um, called Santa Barbara. And I originally started my career as a bankruptcy attorney um, and was never wanting to be an entrepreneur at all. And I was approached by the two partners in our firm and they told me they were preparing for retirement. So I had to find a new job. So it forced me to start my own firm. And going through that legal base really had me confused because they don't really teach you practical um, business law in law school. They don't really teach you a lot of practical applications of the law, actually. And so I really had to figure that out on my own. And eventually I realized that if it was really difficult for me to figure it out and I went to law school, then it's got to be difficult for other female entrepreneurs as well. So it became my mission and my vision behind my business to really empower other women and help them figure out the legal base in their business and do it in a way that isn't confusing or intimidating or overwhelming. And that really became, I pivoted from being a solo practitioner bankruptcy attorney to now being an online entrepreneur, um, or excuse me, an online business attorney for online entrepreneurs. Um, although I do have a lot of brick and mortar businesses, business clients as well, but really working with small businesses and females and, and really helping them kind of figure all the legal stuff out. Yes. That's so wonderful. I think I was so confused when I started my business too. And it, it definitely felt like there weren't resources to tell you, like, these are the steps you need to take. And I mean, I'm very much like an action planner. So I've always felt like if there was just a roadmap, I would follow the roadmap. But it does feel like you said there's not always like the practical examples. And so I love that you've been able to kind of not experience that yourself necessarily, but you've been able to take that both with your background and starting your own business to really help other entrepreneurs. And I really love on the homepage of your website, you call out, you know, that you're really on a mission to empower entrepreneurs to protect their dream business by keeping their shit safe. (laughs) Um, I just love that because it's like, oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Um, Could you speak to kind of maybe what some of the not so great consequences are if we're not protecting our businesses legally and, and what that looks like? Yeah. So it's kind of all the things that you would imagine, right? It's all the scary stuff. Um, 
you could be fined. Um, you could be penalized. Um, there are certain things like, for example, there are certainly legal requirements for online businesses that people don't really realize. Um, so for example, if you have a website, there are legal requirements that need to be on your website. And also, you know, working with clients, if you don't have the right contracts in place, if you don't have the right language in your contracts, then you could be losing out on income. You could be having to refund someone because you don't have the right language in place. And then obviously there's, you know, the big scary lawsuit that um, is kind of always looming. And, and I'll talk about that a little bit. I know that you're going to ask me a little bit about trademarks, but really making sure that you're not infringing on anyone else's intellectual property is really, really important, especially if you're working in the online space, because you're really putting yourself out there to a greater audience base and more in the public eye. So you want to make sure that you're doing, doing your due diligence and making sure that you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's just in general in your business, because you're in the online space, you're a little bit under a little bit more of a magnifying glass. So it's important to get everything in place so that you're really avoiding like penalties, fees, fines, lawsuits, all those things that you would think about when you don't have the right legal base set up. Right. That all sounds scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. I think it's one thing to maybe get like a fine for something, but then when you're looking at like a lawsuit, I mean, that's all just something that could as a small business, like lead you to close your doors. And so I think that's... Well, and the other thing too is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the other thing too that I just thought about was, um, you know, that's all one thing, like, you know, being fined and penalized and having to pay someone um, for using their intellectual property is one thing, but I've also had clients that have had to completely rebuild their businesses because they were using someone else's intellectual property. So they were in business for three years and we found out there was a trademark on the name that they had been using. So they had to redo everything in their business. And it was a simple, easy fix that that could have been avoided really early on in their business. So that's also, you know, something else is it's not just the money portion of it, but it's also the time that goes into, you know, having to redo everything that you've worked so hard to create in your business. Right. Yeah. It's like starting over from scratch again, because then you have to kind of re-educate customers in the market on who you are and what you stand for. Exactly. Um, so yes, I can understand how that would be a very heavy investment, both money and time-wise, if you don't have things that are in place in the beginning of your business, um, which is a great segue into kind of talking about, you know, we want to discuss sort of what we want to have in place at different stages in our business. And so maybe we can start with the beginning when we're starting our businesses and what are some of the key things, you know, an entrepreneur starting out needs to really have in place as they are preparing to launch? Yeah, well, I always tell people to look at their business entity first. So whether you are a sole proprietor, which is basically you just start doing business, or you're an LLC, which is a limited liability company. Now, I always recommend that my clients become LLCs because it creates a shelter around your personal assets in terms of your business liabilities. And it's really important that we become LLCs early on. And main reason why people don't is because that there's a money that's involved with becoming an LLC, right? And I think a lot of the time people are really intimidated because they know it's a legal process and, you know, they want to go out, they want to start making money before they invest in the legal side. I always tell people to consider legal to be part of their foundational cost when they're starting a business. So just as you'd spend money on a website, or you'd spend money on your domain name, branding, all of that stuff, you really should set aside some money for legal as well, because it's really, really important to get that in place. 
So becoming an LLC is really step one, making sure that you um, create that shelter, that layer of protection around your personal assets. So if you come into any disputes with any clients or any vendors or any, you know, one that you might encounter in your business, they can only come after your business assets, which would basically be your business bank account. And that's really, really important. That's always kind of step one. And depending on the state that you live in, it, it can actually be incredibly affordable. So I always tell people, you know, don't let the cost sway you because it, it can actually be something that you can really budget into the startup costs for your business. And, you know, it's really important to make sure that you speak to an attorney to become an LLC. And I'm not saying that because I'm an attorney, but the reason why, you know, I think a lot of people tend to want to do legal zoom or something like that. Um, and I always tell my clients not to do legal zoom again, not because I'm an, an attorney, but I've actually used LegalZoom to file an LLC because I don't want to tell people not to do something unless I've tried it myself. And they basically can do things that you can do for yourself. So basically the only things that they're doing are filling out the paperwork to become an LLC, the paperwork that you file with your state's um, secretary of state. And that's really simple paperwork. That's honestly something that you can do on your own. But the benefit of having an attorney in place is they're going to make sure that you have what's called your business formalities in place. That's just a really fancy lawyer way of saying dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And in the eyes of the law, if you don't have your business formalities in place, then they look at you as treating your business not like a business, right? They want you to treat it like a separate entity, like you are yourself and your business is like a different person. So if you're not maintaining those business formalities, then you actually lose that sheltered protection and it's as if your business isn't an LLC at all. So it kind of defeats the purpose of filing an LLC. Now, that's why I recommend speaking to an attorney because we know what those business formalities are. We know exactly what you need to do to dot your I's and cross your T's. For example, not commingling your funds, right? Not mixing your business and personal funds. Don't take your business bank account debit card and go buy yourself a brand new wardrobe, right? That's inappropriate. So, um, you know, all of those little nuances, making sure that you file the right forms on time, making sure that you pay the right taxes on time. Those are all the things that you have to do in order to maintain business formalities. And that's where the benefit of hiring an attorney comes in. Again, you don't need to pay LegalZoom to fill out the paperwork. It's something that you can do on your own, but really having an attorney in your corner to make sure that you are doing all the things you need to do to maintain that sheltered protection is where you're going to get the biggest value. That's all such wonderful advice. And I love that you brought up LegalZoom because I've heard it's not usually the best route to go. And so it didn't exist at the time when I started my company, but um, I have heard that it's not the best way to go and often leads to more confusion and um, I think uncertainty and rather, like you said, those business formalities, if those are all in place or what you need to do next. Um, and you also mentioned the Secretary of State, and I think that's a great thing for anyone listening that doesn't know, like, where do I start first? I would say follow your advice and definitely talk to an attorney, but then also the Secretary of State resource for me has been super helpful, especially mm -hmm. as I started my company in California and then I moved to Oregon. And so understanding what an LLC looks like in both um, in both states was also really important, as well as talking to an attorney. So. Um, I'm just going to highlight everything you said. I know it's going to feel like a, a scary investment, but I think it really does make sure that you have that foundation in place um, and to really make sure that you are, like you said, dotting your I's, crossing your T's. Yeah. And 
Um, I think there was one other thing with the business formalities. I mean, you talked about having a separate business account, um, paying your taxes, getting a plan in place for that. Is that something that uh, a CPA or accountant can help with too? Or do you recommend starting with a business attorney? I always recommend starting with an attorney. An accountant's definitely going to be beneficial for your business as well. An attorney can help you set up a little bit of the tax portion of it. Like when I um, create an LLC for my clients, I get their EIN number. I help them pay their initial taxes, um, again, with the state of California. And um, so an attorney can help you set up the initial base for your tax, but obviously you should always speak with the CPA because they can help you determine you know, whether your LLC should be treated as an S-corp in the eyes of the IRS or exactly what forms you need to be filing. And I mean, taxes can be confusing for me, so I totally understand why, um, you know, the value of hiring a CPA to do that. So I would start with an attorney. And then once you have everything all set up, then you can um, work with your CPA and get the tax portion of it all, you know, put into place. Mm, That makes sense. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> I think it's it's so tricky sometimes to know exactly who does what and how you can kind of build that team around you to help support you at those different stages. Right, exactly. And I, I always also encourage people to consider an attorney to be like a base, right? We'll let you know what other professionals you need to speak to in order to get all the different areas. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, And I know earlier you talked about some of like the legal requirements for websites. And so I'm curious as someone who's, you know, taking or thinking about launching their business, what are some things that they need to have in place around the website? Yeah. Putting that together. Yeah. So there are three documents that I recommend people have on their website. And um, this is more for service-based businesses. So there is um, something called a privacy policy, which we all kind of know about, right? We've all seen it on the base of other people's websites. And this can be a legally required document, which means that if you don't have one or if you have one that's missing the requisite legal language, you can get subject to fines and penalties. And those can be pretty hefty. California will fine you up to $2,500 per visitor to your site, There's also what we've heard of is the GOPD, which also, um, excuse me, the GDPR, um, which also has some fines associated with it as well if you don't have the right language to satisfy the legal requirements. And those are, those two laws that I mentioned, um, they are for California citizens and European citizens. And a lot of people think, well, I don't need them because I don't live in California. I don't live in the European Union. But if you have any visitors um, to your site that are from those locations, then you have to have the legally required language in your privacy policy. So a lot of us remember a few years ago when Mark Zuckerberg got in trouble and he had to testify in front of Congress because he was using our Facebook data without our knowledge. I think he was selling it to like a political marketing campaign or something. Well, because of that, the law in Congress takes the way that we regulate data that we collect from people when we visit websites very, very seriously. And that's where the privacy policy comes into place. So if you were to open a privacy policy on someone's website, it lets the visitors know the type of data that you're collecting, how you're collecting it, which is usually opt-ins, freebies, or... um, If you have IP addresses, which is, you know, a data locator in and of itself, 
um, how you plan on using it, which is, you know, subscribing to an email sequence or sending out a freebie, collecting information for billing purposes, all that kind of stuff. So you legally are required to let the visitors know all of the personal data you're collecting and how they can remove their personal data from your database if they want to. And again, this is the legally required document. So it's really important that you have that on your website just first and foremost. I also recommend putting into place a terms and conditions. And a terms and conditions is essentially your content protection for your site. So it lets all the visitors to your site know that everything on your site is your intellectual property and that they can't use it without your expressed written permission. So it basically, if you think about if someone took your site and they created a dummy site and then they just replaced the logo on it, now that would obviously be a violation of your intellectual property. They would look exactly the same. Consumers would be confused as to which company was which. So this is going to protect your name, your logo. If you have services that have a specific name on them, it's going to protect that information. And also what's really important in your terms and conditions is something called a dispute resolution clause. And that's just a really fancy way of saying how disputes are handled between yourself and any visitors to your site. So I write all of mine to say that they will be resolved through arbitration and in my client's home city and state. So that way they don't have to travel to another state or even another country to defend themselves if something's brought up about anything that they post about on their website. And then I also recommend that people have what's called a website disclaimer on their site. And this is um, mostly for service-based industries, but if you are a product-based industry, then you might need them as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Depending on the kind of products that you are selling, you may need one if, for example, you're selling essential oil products or personal hygiene products, bath products, something like that, then you would also need a disclaimer. So a disclaimer lets your visitors know that everything on your site is for general and informational purposes only, that you're not working in the capacity of a doctor, lawyer, CPA, hygienist, whatever it may be, and that they are assuming all the risks by, you know, participating in anything that you talk about on your site. So the main obvious example that I always give is a health and wellness coach, right? So let's say you have a website, you have a blog, you post on your blog how to do the perfect squat. Someone does it at home. You're obviously not there to monitor them and, and see what they're doing. They slip and injure themselves. You want to make sure that the visitors know that they are assuming the risks by doing that at home by themselves and that you are limiting your liability for anything that you talk about on your website. So it also covers, you know, if you have testimonials on your site, right? You don't want, if you have a client that says, I lost 10 pounds in two weeks, you want to let people know that that is their language, that they are speaking from their own experience, and that you are not guaranteeing any results with your services. Again, if you're a products-based business that um, is dealing with something on a more personal level, right, you're not selling t-shirts, no nothing like that, then you would also need a disclaimer on your site. Wonderful. Those are such great things. So just to recap, you're recommending the privacy policy, the terms and conditions, and then also this disclaimer. Um, which now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know if I have a disclaimer on my website. <laughs> so I've never really thought about it from like the testimonial standpoint because I have testimonials on my website and it's it's true. I mean, that is that personal, that person's own experience having worked with me, um, but it's definitely not a guarantee that for the next person, that's exactly going to be their outcome. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to touch on as well is just to say, 
you know, you don't want someone to go and visit your website and say, oh, you know, you obviously you want to make sure you don't have any guaranteeing language on your site. You're not saying anything like you will experience X, Y, Z, but you know, same thing when dealing with your, um, your past clients, you know, if they have testimonials on there, you want to let people know this is their experience. This is, uh, you know, what they've had, um, as a result from working with me, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. Right. Yes. That's why it's really important to work with an attorney to make sure that the, that language is in place. Absolutely. And I guess as an entrepreneur is starting to take on clients or selling products, you know, we've talked about what are the foundational pieces for launching. And so I think sometimes it can feel like a one and done, like I've got everything in place. I'm ready to like go work at my business. And so as you're starting to grow and take on these clients, how, like, what do you need to be thinking about from a legal perspective? Yeah. Yeah. So if you are a products-based business, so in addition to the, um, the website documents that I just recommended, then you'll also need to have what's called a terms of service in place. And a terms of service, even though we may not be familiar with the term, we all know exactly what it is because we're all stuck at home right now, ordering Amazon and Target like crazy people. <laughs> and whenever you order anything online, you have to check a little box that says that you agree to the terms of service before you can purchase anything online. Now, if you were to open it, which really no one ever does, myself included, if I'm being honest, but if you were to open it, you would see that by checking the box, you are agreeing to terms that the company has laid out. And if you're a product-based business, these terms include stuff like the returns policy, right? We don't accept returns for washed items. Um, We only accept returns within a 45-day window, whatever it may be. Um, we don't ship international, you know, whatever the terms uh, the company holds, that's what you're agreeing to amongst a bunch of other things such as intellectual property protection. Again, that dispute resolution clause, what happens if you have a dispute with that company, you're already agreeing beforehand how that dispute will be handled. And um, again, I write those to say arbitration so that my clients won't be sued as a default. They have to go through arbitration because that's something that my clients... um, that their clients are agreeing to ahead of time. So there's a lot of really important provisions to have in your terms of service to protect yourself and to protect your company if you're selling any products online. Um, It's really important and you're legally required to have that be apparent and obvious for your clients. So they have to be able to uh, read it, agree, and acknowledge it before they purchase anything, which is why that checkbox is so important. So that checkbox allows you, right, like you cannot move forward unless you check the box. I've done that so many times where you're just like so excited to order something, you forget to check the box and it refreshes and highlights it for you. So that is, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So that is apparent and obvious. And if you wanted to open it and read it again, most of us don't. Um, But if you wanted to, then you could just click the hyperlink and then look at everything and and, um, read it before you purchase any products. So if you're a products-based business, 100%, you have to have a terms of service. Um, It also protects you, right, if you have like merchandise that has like your logo on it or a a specific phrase or slogan on it, you know, you want to have intellectual property language on there that says that someone can't buy your product, go home, recreate it themselves, and then sell it on their own website. So those are all really important things to have in your terms of service. If you are a... um, if you are a business that has digital products, such as 
group coaching programs, masterminds, ebooks, um, evergreen courses, anything like that, any type of digital product, then you're going to want to have what's called a terms of use. So a terms of use is just like a terms of service, but it's for digital products where, again, the terms of service is for physical products. Some of the things that you want people to agree to in a terms of use is, again, intellectual property protection. If you have a course, you don't want someone to go and replicate your exact course and then sell it themselves. Um, you're also going to have them agree to... Um, you know, that dispute resolution clause, how disputes are going to be handled moving forward, if any come up. Also, you want language specifically in there for recurring charges. So if you are, let's say you are a course creator and you have a payment plan on your course, you're legally required to have your clients, again, agree and acknowledge to a payment plan to those recurring charges. So if you're charging someone on a monthly basis, you have to have your client agree to it. Otherwise, they're not actually agreeing to those monthly payments. So I've had a client before that did not have specific language. Actually, she didn't even have a, a terms of use in place. And she had a client who signed up for a course on a payment plan after about a couple weeks decided it was not for her and wanted a refund. And she ended up losing because the client didn't specifically agree to that payment plan. So she lost out on, you know, the next few months of income that was coming in for her. So these are all really important things to have in place. And then also if you have any refund or no refund policies, again, refund policies or no refund policies are you're legally required to have your client know what that is, agree to it, acknowledge it, and um, either have it in a little checkbox, again, in that terms of use, if you are a subscription-based product um, service, let's say you have a monthly subscription box, again, those are all things that you need to have, refund policies, recurring charges, that's all language that you need to have in your terms of use or your terms of service. And lastly, if you are a um, service-based business and you are taking one-on-one -on -one clients such as a business coach, a manifestation coach, a fitness instructor, anything like that, then you're going to want to have your clients sign a client agreement. Now, a terms of use is kind of like a client agreement, but for like a larger group of people, right? You imagine going to bed, waking up, someone signed up for your course, but you don't have a way to send them a client agreement, right? Like let's say 10 people sign up for your course in the middle of the night, you're not going to send them all a client agreement. So that's how the terms of use takes care of that. But if you have a one-on-one -on -one client and you have a specific program that you've customized for them, a payment plan that you've customized for them, let's say they're doing six months, whereas someone else might do three months or whatever it may be, you want to have them sign a client agreement and it's going to have a lot of the same protections you know, intellectual property protection, you're going to want to have confidentiality protection, right? A lot of the time when you work intimately with someone, you reveal things about your business, about your services, you want to make sure that that is maintained confidential. And again, you're legally required to let them know about recurring charges, refund policies, all of that fun stuff. Yeah. So that's going to be my question is about specific like one-on-one -on -one client contracts and thinking about, you know, does every single client need to sign one of those? If you are doing like a group coaching, what does that look like? So I think you've kind of helped um, clear that up a little bit, which is wonderful. So talking about kind of the client contracts and the terms of use, terms of service, and I'm even thinking about my own business and how I probably need to go look at all of these assets right now and make sure that they're in place. 
Um, I know this is a, a way that you work with clients. So I know you have a lot of templates on your website. And so I'm curious, when does someone kind of just purchase a template versus maybe they purchase a template and then consult with you to make sure that it's customized for their business? Maybe talk yeah. a little bit about how you work with clients. Yeah, certainly. So there's a lot of times when you can DIY things in your business. And, um, you know, I, like I said, was a reluctant entrepreneur when I started my my own business. And so I DIY'd a lot of things. And then later on, I really realized the value of hiring people to do things for me that I wasn't so good at doing. So from a legal perspective, there are things that you certainly can DIY and cut down the cost of. As you mentioned, I've created a bunch of legal templates that you can use in your business, and it allows me to really have the cost way down because I'm not creating a custom contract. I don't have to, you know, start from scratch to create these contracts, which would normally cost, you know, thousands of dollars if an attorney is doing it from scratch. Um, ways that you can use templates, for example, the website documents. I do have a website bundle on my site, and again, it's incredibly affordable because I have already created them and I don't need to kind of recreate the wheel. So I can sell them in a way that you can, um, I call them done for you legal templates. So you can just kind of plug and play your own business information into them. So for example, the website bundle that has those three website documents that I talk about is only $4.97 and there's a payment plan of three payments of $166. So it's really, really affordable. And um, if you are an online coach or you're doing any type of online coaching or even any type of fitness instruction online, such as, um, you know, online yoga classes or anything like that, I do have templates for those too. As you're growing your business, you can um, use a lot of the other templates that I have, such as an affiliate agreement if you're ready to take on affiliates, an independent contractor agreement if you're ready to hire a VA or a social media manager or anyone else on your team. And there's a bunch of other ones that I have on there as well that you can use to kind of grow your business. So start foundationally is what I recommend people do. Um, you know, start with your LLC, start with your, your website documents. If you are ready to take on clients, move on to that field. You don't need to be overwhelmed and, um, you know, uh, take everything on at one time, but you can kind of slowly build your legal base. Now, in terms of the appropriate time to use a template and the appropriate time to have a custom contract, it really depends on your business. And I know everybody bus everybody's businesses are unique and very specific, and we do things that are, you know, um, very passionate, we're passionate about. So, um, you know, I can understand why a lot of people, you know, really want very specific things in their contracts. And if that's the case, you know, obviously you can hire um, me to customize any of the templates. But if you have a business that's, you know, relatively kind of falls in line, like if you're doing online coaching and you're not doing anything that's very, very specific, then um, a template is perfectly fine for your business. So if you have, let's say, for example, um, you are doing something that um, like, like, for example, I have a client who is a licensed clinical therapist, and she is licensed in two different states. So she cannot practice outside of that, those two states that she's licensed in. So she needed to have me come in and customize her contracts because she needed to have very specific language that states that she is not working in the capacity as a licensed clinical therapist because she doesn't want to violate her licenses. So there are times when you need a very specific contract 
I offer free business consultations. I'm happy to sit down with anyone and go through their business and let people know. I'm not like a sleazy attorney, used car salesman kind of attorney that will try to sell you in something that you don't need. If I feel like a template is perfect for you, then that's what I will recommend. And if I feel like you need some customization, then um, you know I'll let you know that too. I always tell people to grab the templates. Um, again, they're really easy. You get downloadable Word versions of them and um, open them up and take a look at them. If you feel like it needs a little bit more customization, then we can work from that. And the customization, it's its not going to cost you an arm and a leg more. Um, I charge, you know, I charge $297 to go in and customize contracts for people if they come from a templated version. So it's not even that much more. And um, you can get additional protections if your business needs it. And most people don't need it which is kind of nice. So you can kind of go in and I say you can go in and protect your business in 10 minutes or less. So yes, that takes some of the fear out of it for sure. (laughs) Being able to kind of just simplify and just know what you need to have in place is a great starting point. And I'm curious too, as you know, you're creating client contracts or um, like have terms of services on your website, how often should we be reviewing those assets? Like, do we need to be updating them? on a regular basis or maybe looking at them on an annually basis to make sure that everything still applies or if we need to add anything. What are your recommendations there? Yeah, that's a really great question. By the way, I love that you call them assets <laughs> because they really are assets in our business. I mean, they are, um, you know, there are protections. And so I just love that you call, I should start calling them assets. I love that. <laughs> I think it's because in marketing, I call everything assets. So like images are your assets and your copy is your asset. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. It's part of the, it's part of your business. It is a business asset for sure. Um, so um, when you should be updating your contracts, um, I, I think it really varies on your specific contracts. So I always tell my clients to update their client agreements whenever they, uh, uh, excuse me, whenever they encounter an issue with a client. So if you have a client, like, for example, my client who, um, you know, didn't have any recurring language, well, she didn't have a terms of use in place at all, but if she didn't have a recurring language in her client contract, and then she encountered a client who disputed that, you're going to want to go back and then amend your contract and include that recurring language in here. Um, So your client agreements, the ones that are one-on-one and your terms of use are really going to be ever evolving. Every time you work with a client, every time you encounter something with a client, you're going to want to go in and make tweaks and kind of narrow your client agreement, right? And everybody's different. So some people have different um, refund policies, for example. Um, A lot of my clients have different, um, you know, Uh, late payment policies. Some people charge, some people don't charge, whatever it may be. And, you know, let's say you have a bunch of clients in a row that are a little bit um, timid to sign your contract because you charge a late fee. Well, then you're going to want to go in and change that, right? So your client agreements will be ever evolving always. And in terms of your other documents, let's say for your website documents, Those, you know, I would recommend looking at them annually, you know, when you're doing your taxes in the beginning of the year or like, I don't know, set a holiday date, like every 4th of July or whatever it might be, celebrate, open up a a beer and take a look at your client agreements or your contracts. Um, So when it comes to your website documents, I would just recommend doing those annually. 
whenever, um, or if the law changes. So whenever anyone purchases any templates from me, I will send you an update if the law changes or evolves. So um, let's say, for example, there is a law, a privacy policy law that passed in Brazil actually a couple years ago, and it just went into effect the summer of this year. So I issued an update for all of my clients so that they could add that into their privacy policies. So whenever the law changes, um, if you've worked with an attorney, uh, if you're working with a good one, they will update you. And um, I would also just take a look at them every single year. So with your privacy policy specifically, you're actually required to send an update to everyone on your list if you make any changes to it. So a lot of times we get those like random emails from Netflix or Hulu and it says, we've changed the terms of our privacy policy. And you're like, great, why are you emailing me this? Sure. (laughs) Um, They're actually legally required. So all businesses, if you have a privacy policy on your site, which all businesses should have a privacy policy on their site, you're legally required to send an email blast to everyone, just letting them know, hey, I made changes. You don't really even need to be specific about it, but send them a link to it so they can take a look at it. And this may, the things that may change on there, your support email address might change. If you have additional products or services that you've listed in your privacy policy that you're collecting data from people for, that might change. The type of data that you're collecting might change, right? Let's say you weren't collecting phone numbers. Now you are for whatever reason. Those are all things that are small little tweaks that we don't think about. And let's say you add a VA and now you want everyone to email the VA for support rather than, you know, your support email address that you had before. So all those things, whenever you make those types of changes, then you need to send an email out. So take an an annual look at those contracts, see if anything's changed. Just take a brief glance at them and, you know, send emails if you need to. Thank you for addressing that. I feel like sometimes it's very easy to kind of be like, oh, everything's in place. I don't need to look at it again. But I mean, definitely in my experience working one-on-one with clients, I feel like after every client, there's almost like a contract reevaluation and making sure that things are very clear or um, if something went in a different way than I thought it was going to or challenged. Um, Thankfully, I've only had that happen once or twice, but um, making sure that that's all in place and very clear for everyone to understand, I think is really important. Um, same with the late payments. That was something that in the beginning of my business, I had experienced a lot. And so for me, having that policy in place was, mm-hmm. was really important. So I would love to maybe switch gears slightly, still in the legal realm, but uh, I want to talk about trademarks. I think this is something for me personally that I've gone back and forth on, like, do I need one? Do I not need one? And so I'd love for you to kind of break down when an entrepreneur should consider taking the steps to get a trademark. Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about trademarks, actually. (laughs) Um, So I'm glad you asked. But just to clarify really quickly before we talk about um, when to file for a trademark, I just want to clarify what exactly a trademark does. So a trademark will protect a business name, a logo, a slogan, or a catchphrase. And, um, you know, when you think about Nike, they have Nike logo, excuse me, the logo's trademarked, the name's trademark, and then their catchphrase, just do it, is also trademarked as well. So basically the purpose of a trademark is to prevent brand dilution. So again, you think about if you have a company and um, let's say Nike, right? And so it's to prevent anyone else from creating a company that has the exact name, look, and feel and 
con creating confusion for consumers, right? You don't want to create brand dilution. You want people to know that the Nike brand belongs to, to Nike. It belongs to you if you're the Nike company and that that is protected all across the board. So the right time to really, um, file for a trademark or get trademark protection in your business? Well, it's kind of twofold. So I always tell my clients that you can either be proactive or reactive when it comes to a trademark. And the proactive approach would be to file for a trademark as soon as you have a name, logo, catchphrase, anything that you want to protect in your business. So when you are proactive about your trademark, you file for the trademark application, you pick what's called a class or category. And a class or category is basically the way that you're using the trademark. And there are a number of different classes or categories. And you can choose, you know, let's say, for example, you want to pick um, athletic wear, you can also pick furniture, you can also pick online coaching, you know, there's a wide variety of different categories that you can pick from. The reason why we can pick from several different categories, and by the way, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office does charge you $225 as a filing fee per class or category, so you have to be really strategic about what you're picking, um, otherwise you can see how a trademark can, can really go up in cost, because I think a lot of clients are like, I want to do it all, so <laughs> I want a class and category and all these things, but um, the reason why a, the trademark office um, requires us to pick a class or category is so that um, the consumer knows exactly how the name's going to be used in a specific area. So you can have a trademark name be the same in completely different classes or categories as long as it doesn't create consumer confusion. I always give the example of Colgate. When we think about Colgate, we think about toothpaste but there's also a Colgate mattress company. Now, you're not going to walk into a mattress store, ask for Colgate, and expect to be handed a tube of toothpaste. There's no brand confusion there. Also, Delta Airlines, Delta Faucets, right? Same name, both trademarked, two completely different areas. You're not going to go into Delta Airlines' website and try to buy a faucet from them. So that's why it's so important to pick the right class or category because it's going to prevent someone else from using that name in the same class or category that you're going to be using it in your business. I've always wondered about that, actually. So thank you for <laughs> addressing that, because I'm like, but their names are the same. And um, I think that's that's a great point about is the consumer confused? Like you're not going to walk into Delta faucets and want to book a flight. So <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So the standard for a trademark whether you're infringing on someone's trademark or whether your trademark is going to be accepted by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, that standard is called the likelihood of confusion test. And that says that either your trademark will be passed or you are um, violating someone else's trademark if there is a likelihood of confusion that a consumer will look at your trademark and or your intended trademark and someone else's filed trademark and be confused as to those two brands. If that is the case, then your trademark will be rejected or you are infringing on someone else's existing trademark. So that's really, really important to understand. I always tell people, you know, whenever you're naming a business or naming a, a course or a program or a podcast or whatever it may be, number one, do a general Google search. If there is something that pops up that is in the kind of same intended area that you want to use, even if it's not trademarked, 
don't use that name. So what a lot of people don't realize is that the intellectual property protection actually lies with the first to use it in commerce, not the first person to file for a trademark. So if something pops up and they're already, let's say, I'm the worst at thinking up names, but let's say the the one I always come up with is Sunshine Consulting, right? Let's say you wanted to use Sunshine Consulting and you are doing online business coaching and there's already someone out there that's using that name. Even if it's not trademark, don't use it because you are going to be violating their intellectual property by using that name. You're going to create some confusion in the market for consumers by using the exact same name. So that's step number one. If nothing pops up online, then I have, I tell people to do a trademark search and you can do that um, by visiting the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It's USPTO.gov. There is a TESS basic word trademark search that you can search their database in. Now that's good practice. Best practice would be to hire an attorney to do a trademark search for you. And the reason is because what most people do, right, they go in and they say, oh, I want to use Sunshine Consulting. It's not on the web. So I'm going to go to the trademark office and look there. And they search in the trademark database and it doesn't pop up there any either. And they go, great. It's I'm not going to infringe on anyone else's trademark because none exists. I'm just going to go ahead and use the name. Well, you can still infringe on someone else's trademark, even if you're not using their exact name. So The really lame example, and bear with me because I'm left-brained and not right-brained creative, Um, the really lame example that I always give is if I wanted to create an athletic wear company and I wanted to call it Pikey, now obviously that would contradict with Nike's trademark because the consumer would look at it and go, well, is Nike creating a lesser brand or like what is going on here? So what most people do is they go in and they just search the name that they want to use and they think it's fine. But if there is Sunshine's Consulting, Sunshining Consulting, Sunshine Consultants, you could be infringing on any one of those trademarks. And if someone else has a trademark and you are infringing on that trademark, you can be sued for damages. Now, you can be sued whether or not you knew a trademark existed. And that's really, really important. So that's why I always tell people to have a trademark do a thorough, or excuse me, why I always tell people to have a trademark attorney do a thorough trademark search for you. It does cost something, obviously, but it's going to cost you way less money to have an attorney do that search for you than if you get sued for damages. And that can cost you in the thousands of dollars if you are using someone else's trademark. And what ends up happening is you're using the name the person that holds the trademark that you didn't know existed sends you a letter and says, you have to stop using this name. And by the way, send us a payment of $5,000 for damages. That's it. And no, no lawsuit. They can just demand damages from you. So it's a really important step. It's one that I tell people not to do. Start with the general Google search. You don't need to hire an attorney to do that, obviously. And if you see something pop up, just don't use the name. That's really the easiest thing to do. Even if you're absolutely in love with it, (laughs) it's better that than having to pay someone money and, and, or rebrand all of your business. So, um, really quickly, I know that was a lot about trademarks, but I wanted to address your initial question, which was when's the right time to file for a trademark. So I said that you can be proactive about it, which would be you're first to use in commerce, you file for your trademark, then you're just protecting it at that point, right? You see something else come up, you send them a cease and assist. I have the trademark, don't use it. If you're reactive about the trademark process, then you don't file, you wait on the name for a while. 
And then you find out either A, someone else is using that name just in, in general, or they have filed for a trademark. Now you have to go in and try to undo your trademark and prove that you're first in use in commerce. That's going to cost you a lot more money than if you just filed for the trademark in the first place. So it's really, really important that if you find a name that you love and that's sticking in your business, that you really be proactive about getting a trademark sooner rather than later in your business and having to reactively um, respond to either someone else using your name or someone else filing for a trademark. Got it. That was so much wonderful information. And um, I'm curious, I think I was also thinking more about like the online world, like there's so many coaches and there's so many service-based businesses. And I love your example about, you know, Sunshine Consulting. And I've seen some really similar names out there. And especially even when people are naming programs and you do see some people that say that they're trademarked. Uh, I don't know if they're just using that little like TM logo or <laughs> um, I know there's also the R, which is different um, being mm-hmm. registered. So I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you monitor this? Like, if you do have a trademark, is that something an attorney monitors for you? Um, How do you kind of make sure that no one is just um, creating pikey that's close? (laughs) (laughs) My lame example. (laughs) No, I kind of love it. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, that's a really great question. So, yeah, the little nuances between all the different names really does make a difference. But again, it also depends on how they're using it. So if someone's using Sun- Sunshine Consulting, even if they have it trademarked, and let's say they are doing like, um, I don't know, like they're a real estate brokerage and you want to do online business, there may not be a likelihood of confusion there. So you may not have an issue. But speaking to an attorney will really help, kind of help you figure out and look at the nuances there in trademark law. And as far as the designations go, um, you know, the R and the TM, I I have had a lot of clients too that have used the TM and and I've spoken to them and they're like, oh, I just like the name. So I put the TM on it because it's my intellectual property and which that's actually inappropriate. Um, You can actually get in some trouble for doing that. So the TM is if you have filed for a trademark application and it is pending in the office. That is, and the TM is, it, the reason why it's inappropriate to use if you haven't gone through the process is because the TM puts people on notice that you have an application. So it's letting people know that this name is unavailable and it's under review with the US Patent and Trademark Office. Now, once your trademark gets formally registered with the US Patent and Trademark Office, that's when you get the little R circle. And again, that's putting people on notice to let them know, I have a registered trademark. You can absolutely not use this name. Again, with some certain caveats, depending on the industry that you're using it in. But that's a formal declaration to people. If you see someone that has a name that has either the TM and the R, you should really, that should be a red flag for you. And you should really take notice and make sure that you're not using that name at all. Got it. Yes. Thank you for that distinction. And I guess my last question around trademarks is, is, does location play into that at all? Like if there's a Sunshine Consulting in Pennsylvania versus Sunshine Consulting in Oregon, um, and maybe they do both consult for businesses, maybe slightly different services, is that something that would be infringing on if one of them had a trademark or does location play a factor in that if you're serving clients in that area? Absolutely. That's a really great question. Yeah. So a trademark application protects the name logo slogan for a national brand. So if you are a mom and pop pizza shop and you have Tony's Pizzeria, 
and you are located in Erie, Pennsylvania, and that is your only location, or let's say you even have another one in like a neighboring town, you can't file a trademark for that. It's only if you have a national brand, a national business. So you are going to like, if you are online and you are a business consultant and you work with various clients all over the United States, that's when you are, um, that's when you can file for an application. So the trademark office does look for that. So it's really important, um, you know, again, to speak with an attorney, make sure that your name is something that can be trademarked, um, which is a whole nother thing, by the way. (laughs) Um, Not everything can be trademarked, obviously. Um, You know, for example, Apple computers can trademark the name Apple because they're describing a computer, but they couldn't go out and trademark the name Apple for an Apple right? That would prevent anyone else from using the word Apple to describe an Apple. So not everything can be trademarked. It can't be too descriptive. Um, And uh, so again, it's really important to speak to a trademark attorney to determine if your name is even something that can be trademarked, if it's going to be infringing on someone else's trademark, and then to be really strategic about what classes and categories you're going to want to use for those trademarks. Great. Yes. Thank you for that. And I'm curious, I know you talked a little bit about, you know, the class and category uh, being like $250. So I'm curious, what can an entrepreneur maybe expect to spend, maybe a range if they're going down this path to trademark? Yeah, it's so it can be a, a lot like this is kind of my theme, I guess, in my business is that it can be a lot more inexpensive than you imagine. So again, depending on the classes or categories that you're going to be filing in, it's $225 per class or category, that is a fee that is paid to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And then additionally, you know, if you're going to be hiring an attorney, that varies. My fees are $999. And um, that includes, you know, the start of the application process and any back and forth that might happen with the um, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So the trademark process is a very lengthy process, which is why my fees are um, what they are. And I'm actually on the lower end in terms of attorneys. Um, the, the process can be anywhere between eight, nine months to a year, just depending on if you're using it, if you are intending to use it, um, you know, if it you if you have to disclaim any of the words, for example, if there's some back and forth where you have to, you know, clarify with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, you know, exactly how you're going to be using it, the name that you're going to be using. There's a lot of back and forth. So and that is per trademark. My fees are per trademark because every single trademark is like a new case that I have to open up and follow along this process. So um, one thing I wanted to mention as well, really quickly, you know, I I get the question quite often of whether or not people should file a trademark name and a logo in the same trademark application. I always recommend that people file those separate because if you file them jointly, then you always have to use them together. So if you ever wanted to change your logo at a later date, then you would have to file a whole new trademark application. Plus, if for some reason your application gets rejected for either one of those things, either for the name or the logo, then it will reject the whole entire thing. So I always recommend that people file their logo and their trademark name or slogan or whatever it may be in two separate trademark applications. Oh, that's a great distinction to make. Thank you. I think, yeah, you kind of want it just to cover everything, but it's just little things like, yeah, in five years from now, if you want to update your logo 
there could be a lot more hoops to go through if you don't have that filed correctly. So thank you for that amazing breakdown on trademarks. I think um, I've been very curious to learn more about it and when I should, shouldn't be doing that. So thank you for that process. And I guess maybe to round out our, our legal conversation here, I'd love for you to kind of expand on if there's any pitfalls that you see entrepreneurs falling into when they are protecting their business and ideas, anything kind of above and beyond what we've spoken about today. Yeah. Well, I see some very common mistakes made time and time again with entrepreneurs in starting their online business um, or just their business in general. And the main thing that I see that I always caution people against is borrowing and in quotations and or um, accepting contracts from somebody else, right? So I understand that legal is very, very intimidating for people. And so they think, okay, I'm just going to go on this other coach's website and I'm just going to borrow their legal documents and slap them onto my website. Now, it's obviously wrong to do that. And I'll tell you why. So just as if we wouldn't go on someone's blog and copy their blog post and paste it on our blog, it's similarly inappropriate to copy and paste someone else's legal documents. Now I see people do this on a number of occasions. A, like I just mentioned, they're going on someone else's website. They are using someone else's legal documents without their permission. And number two is if they're working with a coach, um, you know, the coach will say, go ahead and you know, you can use my client agreement for, you know, the coach is thinking they're doing this wonderful thing, helping out their clients. And they say, you know, go ahead and use the client agreement in your own business. Now, both of these actions are actually a violation of intellectual property law. So the copyright protection belongs to the attorney that drafted those documents. So you're actually violating intellectual property of the attorney by either quote, borrowing these or using someone else's legal documents. When you purchase legal documents from an attorney, you are granted a license to use them in your business, not a license to share them and not a license to sell them. So it's really, really important that people don't make this initial pitfall and, you know, steal someone else's documents, um, infringe on an attorney's intellectual property rights. I have had clients that have come to me and they've actually been found out from the attorney that have that has drafted some of these documents. So I know that, you know, we're in the World Wide Web and there's a lot of people out there running online businesses. But trust me, an attorney will most likely find out that you've used these documents and taken them without their permission. So you actually need the expressed written permission of the attorney that drafted the documents in order to use them. So really make sure that you're not doing that. I've seen clients get in a lot of trouble for doing that. And then they've come to me and said, I got in trouble with this attorney and now I need legal documents (laughs) and I had to pay them because, yeah, yeah. But a lot of people don't really see, you know, they don't see anything wrong with it, right? And it's because they they assume that legal is going to cost so much. So they like, oh, I'm just going to borrow them from somebody else. But when I mentioned the blog post to them, like you would never take someone's blog post and just slap it up on your blog. And they're like, oh, no, I would never do that. Well, it's basically the same thing. It's copyright infringement. So um, again, you know, make sure you're not doing this. The number one thing not to do, that's for sure. Don't, you know, don't try to get your legal set up by being illegal. (laughs) Um, And also don't be stunned. Don't, you know, just not do anything with your legal because you're scared of it, because you think it's going to be too much money, because you don't understand it. I promise you, 
It is easier and cheaper than you expect, and it is way easier to implement it in your business than you would ever imagine. So, you know, if it's not me that you're working with, make sure that you work with an attorney that understands the online space and, you know, can speak to you in a way that you really understand not just what you need, but why you need it, right? I'll never tell my clients, you need a terms of use and not explain exactly what it is, why you need it and how it's going to protect your business. It doesn't have to be confusing. Don't let that portion of it just completely stun you and not do anything when it comes to your legal. Wonderful advice. Yes, absolutely. And I love how you've been able to kind of break everything down today and just make it very clear explaining the why behind why we need these things in place. So definitely appreciate that. And yes, I think it's all about finding the right person to work with. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'd love for you to maybe tell everyone where they can connect with you further if they'd love to work with you. Yeah. Um, well, you can find me on my website. It's www.nataliepuglisi.com. I don't know why I say the www. It makes me sound super old. Um, <laughs> you can go to nataliepuglisi.com and it's P-U-G-L-I-S-I. And you can book a free consultation there. Take a look at my templates. I also do free um, trademark consultations as well. So if you want to talk about an intended trademark, um, I won't do a trademark search for you, but I'll at least walk you through the trademark process and let you know exactly what to expect. And if I see anything that's initially alarming, I'll let you know for that as well. Um, and I'm also really, really active on Instagram. You can find me at Natalie Puglisi. And I give a ton of free content there, a ton of free value. Every single post that I write, I, I basically don't write any fluff posts that are like, I love my clients. I love my life. Happy Friday. Every single post of mine has really, really valuable um, information that you can implement in your business right away. They're all, you know, save worthy posts. So you can get a ton of value from my Instagram page. And then I also have a private Facebook group. It's called Empowered Female Entrepreneurs. And you can find me on there. And um, if you have legal questions, you can post them in the group. And I will answer them for you. I also go live, um, you know, from time to time, probably once a month. And then I also have trainings in there um, where I will go in and, and teach people things and educate people and also answer any questions live that anyone might have. So wonderful. That sounds great. I'm going to have to join. <laughs> um, I will include links to all of that in the show notes. And my last question that I want to ask you is how does being intentional show up in your life or business? I love this question. I, it, it took me a little minute to think about it. Um, but I, I've spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this work-life balance, right? This like mythical unicorn called work-life balance. And I've really spent the last couple months, um, in my business, really being intentional from a personal perspective and a business perspective. I'm a very, very left-brained type A kind of personality. And I've really spent the last two months really being intentional and turning off business when I'm not in business and really being present with my family and present with my daughter and playing around and being silly and doing all the things and putting my phone on a shelf somewhere and it also really allows me when I then come to my business to really be intentional in my business and really give a lot to my clients. And I know a lot of us have a to-do list, right? And there's always that like one or two thing on your to-do list that you just absolutely don't want to do. And then when you end up doing it, it took you like 10 minutes and it ended up not being that big of a deal at all. Well, 
taking some time away and being intentional in my personal life and then coming back and really being intentional in my business life has really allowed me to go through those obnoxious things on my to-do list and really move forward with them and really provide the best value for my clients so I can be there for them as best that I can and support them in every possible way that I can. I relate to that so deeply and strongly. <laughs> it, it's always those couple of things on the to-do list you like put off, put off. And then mm-hmm. if you do them, you're like, that wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, same for me when I kind of step away and come back with that fresh mind. It's amazing how much easier you're able to flow through things and less resistance. So uh, absolutely relatable. And just want to thank you so much, Natalie, for being here today. I think this was such a... Uh, in-depth conversation about the legal. And I mean, I even feel better about it. I think legal has always made me feel a little bit like, ah, and overwhelmed. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to me the first to know when a new episode is available. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on Instagram at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out chipperfieldmedia.com for free resources, subscribe to my monthly newsletter, and learn more about the holistic marketing system.